service. We pray for me and the delivery of your word today that it would be received by your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Great job. Thanks. Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church community. My name is Nathan. So glad you're here. The fact that you are here is a good thing. The fact that Christ is here means that anything is possible. Yes. So I hope that you are uh, here and prepared to be present here, to be fully here, holy here, here now, as we say in my house. Let's be here now. Um, Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We will hand you one. We're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 5. John chapter 5, and if you grab a Bible from one of our ushers, it's on page 743. We'll read a text there that's a little bit too long to put on the screen, so it'd be great to have it in front of you. Also, if you're on the aisle and there's a basket under your seat, would you grab it and pass it down? And if um, it's the first time that you've been here or the first time in a while, feel free to grab a, um, a card that's in the basket and fill it out if you'd like to hand off your, uh, your email or your contact information so that we can stay in touch better. All right. Good. I want to start this morning with a story. The year was 1979. He had already sent his wife and his young children away from their home in Nicaragua to live with a family member in San Francisco just to be safe. Uh, He had hoped that... um, the rumors of revolution were exaggerated. He decided to stay because he had a good job with the government. Um, But things were increasing in intensity, and so they felt like the best thing to do was to send the children uh, away with their mom. Uh, He had hoped that the unrest would settle down, um, that after a short time he'd be able to bring his family back to live with him in Nicaragua, and things would kind of go back to the way they were. Uh, But what he hoped for didn't happen. The violence increased. The country became increasingly unstable. He saw his own neighbor shot in front of his house. And so early one morning, he got into his car with a friend, his briefcase, and a couple hundred dollars, and he tried to make his way to the airport. He was Uh, concerned that the flights were being canceled so rapidly that uh, he would not be able to make it there in time. He He was shocked to find that the main road through the capital city had already been closed. The the main way to the only airport in the country was shut down. He tried another route, but he was turned back again. Eventually, after picking his way through this maze of streets and back alleys and dirt roads, he found a way to the airport. He gave his car to his friend, grabbed his briefcase, and ran inside. It was chaos inside because they'd already stopped selling tickets. There were the flights that were leaving then, and then there would be no more flights after that. Now, he already had a ticket because he bought one several months earlier, but his visa had expired because it was a work-related thing, and his work uh, out of the country had stopped. So he knew he was going to have an issue with the visa, uh, but he had hoped that, that if, um, if he could get past just that piece, uh, it would be okay. But then he was also concerned because he, he, he knew that he, the uh, airline official would probably ask for his ID. And since he worked for the government, he was concerned that they would recognize his position as one of interest, 
and that they would bar him from boarding the plane. And this wasn't just a, a possibility. This was an almost complete certainty because as the, resu- as the revolution had gained strength, government officials at his level uh, were being arrested or worse and were being barred from leaving the country. But this was the last option. He had to get in this line because he had to get on that plane. And so he got in the line. And as he got closer and closer to the front of the line, he said that he felt like he was going to die. He said his heart was just coming out of him. He said he had no idea what was going to happen to him when he reached the end of the line. Today I want to talk about the end of the line. Today I want to talk about the doctrine of divine judgment. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says that it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So all spring we've been uh, talking about the Apostles' Creed. In the last few weeks, just since Easter, we've been focusing on the present ministry of Jesus, what Jesus is doing now, not what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on his earthly, in his earthly ministry on the other side of the world, which is rightly so what we typically focus on when we study the life of Jesus, but we've been focusing on what Jesus is doing right now. Theologians call it his heavenly or his celestial session, what he's doing now at this time and place, right? Um, the Apostles' Creed sums up what Christians have taught about Jesus, not just then, but about Jesus now. So if we go back to Easter, we, we, we taught this, that on the third day, Jesus rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. And so with these two phrases, you kind of have this overlap of Jesus' earthly ministry and his heavenly ministry. And then what comes next is the only present tense statement in the creed about Jesus He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. This is what we talked about last week. And now the creed looks to the future. And it says this, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. So we have two big doctrines in this short little phrase. The first is the doctrine of the second coming, the idea that Jesus will return. It's a theme of all the preaching in Acts. It shows up throughout the New Testament. But what I want to focus on is the second belief held in this statement, the belief that when Jesus comes, Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. And what I want to do this morning is something that we rarely do because it's a bit uncomfortable, I think, in our culture. But I want to invite you to think with me about the idea of God's judgment. This is something that applies to every single one of us because it's in every single one of our futures. Uh, You and I will die or Jesus will return and then there will be uh, the judgment. Now, I know that a lot of preachers have said a lot of words about God's judgment, and that when I say, today we're going to talk about God's judgment, there's probably a different reaction inside of you than when I said, today we're going to talk about the resurrection, or today we're going to talk about the ascension of Christ. I'm thinking that some of you have some pretty significant emotional or spiritual or church-related baggage connected to this doctrine of divine judgment. And because of that baggage, we tend to error in our understanding of this core Christian doctrine. And that misunderstanding of this doctrine is significant because it messes up the way we live. It messes up the way we interact with God, and it messes up the way we live here in our life. We tend, I think, to error in one of two different extremes. My mentor put it this way. There is a circle of biblical truth. In other words, what the Bible says about any topic could be contained, in a sense, in a circle of truth. 
we have a tendency, all of us, to exaggerate certain parts of, certain parts of the Bible and push them beyond the circle of biblical truth in one direction or another. So when it comes to the idea of judgment, some of us lean in the direction that says what we do earns God's love, that it's about work, that it's about earning, that it's a picture of a scale, and here's my good stuff, and here's my bad stuff, and those get compared and related to one another. A lot of us lean in that direction or actually jump out of the circle entirely and just sort of camp out over there. Uh, Some of us lean in the other direction, the opposite direction, which is the direction that says that what we do doesn't matter because it's grace and it's love, right? I'd argue that a faithful reading of the Bible shows that both the position that says what we do earns and the position that says what we do doesn't matter are both outside of the circle of biblical truth. When it comes to the topic of judgment, before we even talk about it in our culture, I think we need to do some some basic house cleaning because there's all this baggage that's associated with it. So let me just try, I'm not going to be able to deal with the baggage really, but let me just try to name some of the junk that's kind of gotten globbed on to this idea of of God's judging people in our culture. Three things I think that just need to be swept out of the way in order for us to have a good, honest, biblical, helpful conversation about this doctrine of God's judgment. First, we need, to, we need to sweep off this idea that judgment in and of itself is wrong. Judging is seen as incredibly negative in our culture, is it not? It's like a high-level offense. If you went to college in the 90s, tolerance was gospel. And so to judge something is the opposite of tolerance. We don't understand judgment and we don't understand tolerance. But in in our culture's perception of it, judgment is like super, super wrong. It's considered a really uh, offensive thing to do. We often say it's wrong to judge. But I think if we think about that carefully, what we really mean is it's wrong for you to judge. Natalie, don't judge me, right? It's wrong for me to judge. We often think of judgment as inherently wrong because we so rarely see it done right. Okay? We see it done, we see judgment that is poorly reasoned. We see judgment that is poorly motivated. And we see judgment that is poorly executed. So because we don't often see judgment done well, we often think that judgment in and of itself is wrong. I want to argue that we need to sweep that away. That is clouding your understanding and mine of the truth about God's judgment. Here's a second idea we need to sweep away, that the idea that no one has the right to judge. You might, you might argue that I don't have the right to judge, and I might argue that you don't have the right to judge. And, and there are some really clear statements in Scripture that say just that. But here's the challenge. There are also some really clear statements in Scripture that actually tell us to judge, right? To judge whether or not somebody's telling the truth. In fact, there are 46 texts in the New Testament about judging. And I've listed on the back of your sermon notes a link so that you can just look those up and have a nice study about judgment if you'd like because it's not quite as simple as people make it sound. Um. We've taken this idea that no one has the right to judge, and we've even applied it to God. Right? Now, you may say, I don't really believe that, but I think we act like that. 
And if we act like that, I think that we might kind of believe that. I was in a conversation with somebody this week, and it was a, it was a tense conversation. And, and at the end of the conversation, the person said to me, well, if God thinks that, then I think God's wrong. And that's kind of what our culture does. And we're all affected by that. Oh, if God is going to say that, well, then I'm, I think God's wrong. No. In our culture, not even God has the right to judge if God disagrees with me. We need to clear that up. <laughs> we need to clear that up. All right. Here's a third idea we need to sweep away. The idea that judgment is bad. Listen, judgment is not equivalent to damnation. To judge does not mean to curse. Okay, judgment is not the opposite of love. Judgment is not the opposite of love. Is it because we fear judgment that we think of judgment? We just typically think of judgment as a bad thing? Why does that sort of live in the bad category of our mind? Is it because we're afraid of it? To judge something is to call it what it is. It's to assess something for, for its actual, uh, on its actual merits. Um, an act or a word or a life can be accurately and reasonably judged as good and right just as well as an act or a word or a life can be judged as wrong or bad. So I want to just name these things. I just want to call them out up front and say, yeah, this idea that judgment is in and of itself wrong, the idea that no one has the right to judge, and the idea that judgment means bad. Those are all things that our culture just, we've just sort of lived in that, and I think we just need to at least, for the sake of the next few minutes, let's just set those down for a minute. If you're not quite ready to sweep them away, let's just set those down for a minute so that we can have an honest conversation um, about what the Bible says about judgment. So here's where I want to go from here. Just some sort of some signposts so you can follow me because there's a lot of content. I want to read a text this morning from John 5. I want, to make t- I want to share two truths that should shape our view of God's judgment. Okay? And then I want to give two words of instruction. Right? Let's look at John chapter 5. Gospel of John, 5th chapter. Um, I think I said it's on page 743. This is the teaching of Jesus. We'll start with verse 16. This is not the only text in the Bible about God's judgment. There's at least 45 others. But I'd like to read this text because I think it shows in a short amount of time a really strong foundation for what the rest of the Bible is going to say about uh, God's judgment. This is kind of thick, this passage. It, It will be a little bit challenging to follow through the first read. So in light of that, let me just sort of forecast what you're about to hear Jesus say. All right? He's going to basically make five points in this passage. He's going to say that he's equal to God. He's going to say that he is the source of life. Because he's the source of life, he's going to say he has the right to judge. He's going to say that not only is he the source of life, but he's the giver of eternal life. And he's going to say that the basis on which he gives that gift of eternal life is whether or not you believe he's true and demonstrate your belief with your actions. That's what he's about to say. Ready? Here we go. John chapter 5, we'll start at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Anybody know what things he was doing on the Sabbath? Can you guess? He was healing people. He healed a guy who was an invalid, or it says, for 38 years, a paralytic 
for 38 years. Told him to pick up your mat and walk, which was explicitly forbidden on the Sabbath. So now he's in trouble. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Why? Listen, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Take note. (laughs) For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, do you hear that? Just as the Father gives life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, interesting, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Why? so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come well, the, when, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as, the, for as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted, he's always kind of repeating the same thing. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28 says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, get this, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Okay. So there's a lot about God's judgment in the Bible. But here in this short passage, Jesus lays down a really good foundation for us to begin the study of his judgment. God has the right to judge. The right that God has to judge is rooted in the fact that God is the creator and continues to sustain all things moment by moment. Jesus shares in the creative work of the Father. Like the Father, the Son gives life, and it's God the Son, Jesus, who specifically has been given the authority to judge. He's been given the role, that's his job, given by the Father to be the judge. In a sense, Jesus has this double right to judge. What's his double right to judge? Well, he is both creator and he is the perfect human. He, He lived a righteous life. So he has the double right to judge because he's done it right and he's the creator. Finally, it's Jesus that gives the gift of eternal life based on whether or not a person believes his words and that he's sent from God. And then here's the proof that a person believes Jesus' words. You're going to have people say it's all about belief, 
and you're going to have people say it's all about deeds. And Jesus says, that's just too easy. Here's the proof that you actually believe it will be revealed by the way you live. Right? Almost any parent can tell you that. What do my kids really believe is going to happen? Well, you'll see based on the way they live, based on the way they behave. So there's a good foundation. The writers of the Bible say a whole lot more about judgment, but John 5 is a great theological starting point. In fact, the creed, here's an example of where the creed is doing a great job being a creed. Uh, The creed is doing a really good job here because the writers of the Bible offer so many challenging perspectives. By challenging, I mean hard to understand and varied emphases on judgment. They talk about this element of it or this piece of it or the coming again or the judgment or the judgment immediately or some judgment later. And so you got all these texts about judgment. It's really hard if you're going to embrace and come out at the end with a clear understanding of this doctrine. You're going to have to hold a whole lot of things in tension. But the creed accomplishes its purpose here by summarizing an especially dense and complicated a theme with just a few words. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. That's where we, we'll just hold on to that, right? That's a great statement about this doctrine. In the end, right, sometime in the future, everybody gets judged by Jesus. We could summarize it by saying that. We could summarize it by saying that we all uh, come to the end of the line. So let me throw down two truths that I hope will shape your understanding of God as judge. And I like these, I hope that these will counteract, will confront some of that baggage that I encourage us to sweep away. Just two things that that I hope that you'll consider. Number one, God sees clearly and decides fairly, okay? Does not see or decide based on appearances or bribes or background or your resources or lack thereof or any unholy or selfish motive, but on the basis of a person's true beliefs as revealed in their deeds. Something happened last week. Some people were calling me. uh, A friend of ours did something that was unconscionable, and they said, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Only God knows, because only God can see clearly. And then because of the nature of this situation, the next question was, well, what's the right judgment? Again, only God knows, because only God can see clearly, and God will judge fairly. In one of George MacDonald's books called The Princess and the Goblin, the grandmother, who is the God figure in the story, gives her grandson, a boy named Curdy, the ability to see accurately what is in a person's heart when he shakes their hand. And so at one point in the book, he sees this very ugly, rough-around-the-edges, threatening-looking person. That's his judgment based on appearance and perspective. He shakes their hand and he realizes in that moment that there's a noble heart in this person. This person is becoming a noble person. And so then he's able to see clearly and judge rightly. There's also the king's court. Wealthy, influential, elegant, well-dressed. And when he shakes their hands at one point in the story, meets all of them, he sees selfishness, ambition, manipulation. He's able to see clearly and judge rightly. When we think of God as judge, we should realize that that he simply sees what's true and calls it what it is. 
If, if the truth is good, God will judge that accurately. And if, if the truth is bad, he will simply call it what it is. You're not going to dupe God. No level of appearance is going to change the way he views something because by nature, he will just see it and call it for what it is. It's God's judgment, but there's more than that. There's a second part of God's judgment, and that is this, that God rights the wrongs. This is really, this is really amazing, but this is part of the, the overall theme of God's judgment in Scripture. Another way of saying, in other words, God judges is to say that God does justice. Okay. He always does the right thing. He always does the right thing. This is what's behind the continual instruction, especially in the Old Testament, to care for the widows and the orphans. Because God is not, his heart is not simply to make some cold, medical, separated, statistical, accurate analysis of a situation. Oh, the lack of a father in her life has created an inability for her to receive love. And like that kind of a judgment. But the heart of the father is more than that. The heart of the father says, and we want to do something about that. See what I'm saying? The heart of the father is not just to judge it as it is, but to bring justice to wherever there is a lack of justice. That's part of the whole judgment thing with him. I'm often asked how I think God will judge a person who has never heard about Jesus or how God will judge a person who has been so violently offended in their life that their whole view of reality has just been broken down and is really, uh, is really a destructive um, and overwhelmingly destructive reality. And then they have a failure of an ability to understand potentially. What I typically say is God's judgment is beyond my capacity to understand. It's mysterious. It's beyond me. I say I don't know how God will judge them. This is beyond me. But then I usually will say this, that I'm sure that if and when we ever behold God's judgment, we will stand in amazement. We'll just stand back in utter amazement because we will acknowledge that the right thing was done, the fair thing was done, the good thing was done, and the merciful thing was done. That God judged perfectly and brought perfect justice to all situations. We can just trust that. We can just stand back and go, your ability to judge is so far beyond my own ability to comprehend it, and yet I'm going to just trust that you, you will bring perfect justice to all situations. When we imagine God as judge, instead of, oh, wrong, whose right is that anyway, that's just so bad, I hope that you'll remember God judges clearly sees clearly, judges fairly, and brings justice, does the right thing in the face of uh, the offenses of others, brings right where there's wrong. Okay. Finally, uh, two words of, uh, of instruction. How does this impact real life? So what? Let me just offer a couple of uh, words of instruction. First, uh, we should be fearful. We should, we should be filled with a holy reverence for God. We will not get anything past him. He will see us as we are. This should create in us not a dread, but a holy fear. A, a deep respect is what I mean. A, a reverence that I'm, he's going to see right 
he's just going to know the reality of who I am in an instant. And I need to be, I need to revere that and him. I must, right, not just consider his commands as suggestions for my life, but I must authentically become a follower of Jesus. I must. Like, I am called to actually, truly, sincerely, no playing around, devote my life to Jesus. We often ask questions of Jesus, which is fine. We often demand explanations from God, which is understandable because we're all experiencing some kind of pain. We often complain, why are you allowing this to happen, God? And those are important questions. But as one author says, uh, if the creed speaks the truth, the question we put to Jesus is not nearly so important as the question Jesus puts to us, right? If the creed speaks the truth, Jesus now lives at the right hand of the Father, then learning Jesus is not a matter of scholarly enterprise or casual reading about a teacher of the past, but a matter of obedience to the one who possesses or who presses upon us at every moment, encounters us in the sacraments and the saints and in strangers, and calls us to account. In other words, you can ask Jesus questions You are free to do so. He even seems to welcome it in conversations like in the Emmaus Road. But please do not forget, Jesus is going to ask you questions. And the questions that Jesus asks you are more important than the questions that you ask him. Jesus says that those who love me obey my commands. Oh man, I knew it was all about being good. No, it's all about your actions demonstrating what's true about you, right? It's about loving God, and those who love will obey his commands. It'll be a natural progression of the desire of the heart. What do you do with your time? It simply reveals what you actually value. How we steward our money what we purchase, how much money we give away. It, it shows the truth. It's what it does. It just show, it's, like a, it's like a spreadsheet for the heart. Here's how much value I place on this, and here's how much value I don't place on this. Right? Time and money. Gosh, that sounds so... It's just practical, is it not? These are just practical revelations of what's happening inside. Measurements, maybe. So I know that I need to remind myself every word that I speak is going to be judged for its authenticity, for its truthfulness, for the motive that drives it. Every thought that I think, every deed that I do, it will all be seen for what it truly is. And I, so I should be reverently fearful. That's what I mean when I say be, be fearful. Be fearful. Don't be casual about, about the end of the line. But then secondly, be hopeful. Okay, be hopeful. Remember earlier I said that Jesus has the double right to judge because he is both God and man? This is so amazing. This truth that Jesus is both God and man just continues to be such a life-giving truth. Uh, Thomas Aquinas says that God the Father appoints God the Son 
as judge so that all people being judged by a person will be filled with hope. Isn't that powerful? Can I say that again? The reason that God the Father says, Jesus, God the Son, you are going to be judged is for our sake so that we, being human, can approach judgment with hope, knowing that we're going to be judged by somebody who understands us experientially. I mean, that's just all love motivating that. That's a powerful truth, that we'll be judged by Christ, who is human like us, as well as divine. Uh, Historically, Christians have faced death with hope, and the reason they face death with hope is because they know who they're going to meet at the end of the line. Amen? Let me finish the story about the airport. He said that as he neared the end of the line, in the only airport in Nicaragua, in the only line getting to the only plane for which he had a ticket, he was nearly overwhelmed with the realization that everything hung in this moment. Everything. What was going to happen in this moment was going to either mean freedom and the, re- the reunion of his family, or it was going to mean his worst fears. And so there were three people in front of him, and then there were two people in front of him, and then there was one person in front of him, and he noticed that his hands were shaking so much that he put his hands into his pockets, and when he looked down, he realized that he had sweat, not through his shirt, but through his jacket. He said he felt like his heart was going to come out of his chest. And as he approached the beginning of the line, as he reached the end of the line, the airport official moves from next to the line to in front of my father-in-law, puts his hand up like this and says, wait, motions to somebody over here to come. And then leaves, goes to a new line, And the person, the new airline employee that comes to take his place is his childhood friend, is the kid who grew up across the street from my (laughs) father-in-law. And so then it's like, hey, how have you been? I know you. How's the family? What's going on? Great to see you. Here's my ticket. Great. Okay. End of the airplane. Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing end of the line story. And the story of Christianity has an even more amazing end-of-the-line story, right? Realize this. When we come to the end of the line, we can have huge hope because it will be Christ who will be meeting us at the end of the line. Realize this, that you will be judged, friends, by the one who truly loves your soul more than anybody else does. Your advocate is your judge. Amen? The one who is like totally committed to your salvation and restoration is the same one who you will meet at the end of the line. Your advocate is your judge. He longs for your redemption. He longs for you to embrace and receive. He has salvation and he has made a way. He himself has made a way for you not to like get by with one, but for you to be accurately, fairly, justifiably judged as clean and forgiven and good. Why? Because he himself has taken his place for you. And he desires your repentance. He longs for you. 
to be in full union with him, fully alive. And he longs for you now to so desperately and authentically long for that kind of union and life with God that your life will reveal that longing. Do you follow me? That what you do will follow your deep longing and your belief that your only hope, your only hope is that when you get to the end of the line, it's Jesus. And so my whole life is going to be shaped and formed around that hope and all that I am, all that I think and all that I do and the way I invest my time and the way I invest my money, everything, it's, it's just got to be all God's, right? The, the whole God has to have the whole Nathan and, and nothing less than that will do. I trust in my forgiveness. I trust in Christ's work on the cross on my behalf. And I know fearfully and hopefully that he will see me as I truly am, what I truly believe, what I truly long for. And I want him to be able to say, I see it there. I see devotion there. I see trust here. I see desperate brokenness here. I see an inability to even fathom something here. And yet you still like lump yourself up on the altar and say, just take this. It's not much anymore, but it's yours. He's going to see us clearly, but he's the advocate. He's the lover of our soul, and he's our judge. That's such good news. That's such good news. When you hear people talk about the judgment of God, <laughs> I, I hope you're full of hope. Right. Let's pray together. I pray for grace to see things as they are, acknowledge the truth, to confess our sins, not to pretend. I pray, Lord, that there would be a sense of conviction that ultimately would materialize in, in a changed life not because we're trying to earn your love, but because we have your love so completely. And so everything we do matters. I thank you for the goodness of the gospel. And the freedom that can come in trusting you as a good and loving father. And uh, the joy that can come in knowing that even at the end, uh, you will be there for us. Advocating for us, welcoming us. May we live for you, Lord. In response to your love, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good. Good. Well, in just a minute, we'll stand up together. But um, before we do that, um, I wanted to say thank you to... Uh, whoops, I lost my last slide. Look at that. There it is. Um, I want to say thank you for the, the great response that we had last week to the invitation to support our single moms on May 9th. Uh, single parents, most of them I think are moms at this point. 
And uh, we had a lot of people sign up to help. This is just a really practical way to make a big difference and to communicate a truth. You're valuable. You're loved. We're the church to support you. Um, and uh, we still need a couple more people. So at the peace, if this is something that you are able to do uh, or willing to do, it's never, you know, working at somebody else's house on a Saturday morning is never convenient. You'll never have time to do this. Um, but this is something that you can say, this is something that I value in my heart. Therefore, <laughs> my deeds ought to demonstrate that value, right? Um, and here's an opportunity. Sometimes it helps if we say, hey, let's all do this at the same time. Let's actually do this. Um, so I'd invite you to, to sign up to, to work somewhere at the info table right now. All right? Good. Why don't you stand up with me? Uh, it's important that we uh, don't contribute to the unholy baggage associated often with the church and with Christianity, but that we push back against that. And so in light of today's uh, theme, that rather than being uh, judging on appearance, we are graceful um, to one another. That's why we do this. This is not about getting coffee, though there is coffee, and you're welcome to get it. Um, but this is ultimately a theologically rooted time of saying we want to actually demonstrate what we've just heard to some level and, and to say you're welcome and you're embraced and you're cared for. There's peace here. All right. So may the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Greet one another with the peace of Christ, and we'll come back together in just a minute.